0: Gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel (laughs) Diggins! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and thedispatch.com. Go to thedispatch.com to find out what is going on in the world of um, stuff I'm increasingly tuned out from. Um, I am talking to you from the parking lot of the Jackson Hole library, someone threw a whole bunch of corn on the ground in the library. So there are crows or Ravens, um, which are in fact different things. Um, when I was back in Fairbanks, the Ravens, Ravens were like twice the size, three times the size of a normal crow from back home. Anyway, uh, they threw corn in the parking lot. So there are lots of crows and Ravens around here making, making noise. Um, so you'll just have to deal with that. I'm also not recording on the usual device for complicated reasons. Um, actually they're not complicated. They're just stupid. Uh, the wifi at my hotel, I think it's the same wifi, um, the hotel had when Wyoming became a state from a territory and it just is not, um, I can't upload the audio, even though I can record my mellifluous and euphonious ramblings. Um, they stay trapped on the recording device if I use that. So I'm using my computer. I have no idea if the sound quality is up to snuff, um, but it is what it is. So this is my last recording um, of anything uh, written or verbal for like a week. In the, We're driving to Idaho today and tomorrow morning... At like seven a.m., we head out on a raft on the Snake River, and um, apparently there's not a lot of a uh, great cell service. So, wish me luck. I'm in. I, this is one of the most depressing things about this trip, which has otherwise been great, it has really hammered home how much um, I need to get back in shape. Uh, it's really I'm just a mess. We went on this hike yesterday in the in Death Canyon. Which is actually a remarkably beautiful place, um, even though it is full of bears. We saw lots of bear poop at one point these people just a hundred yards in front of us had to scream and scare away a bear um, the bear we were doing the switchback back around to where they saw the bear. the bear came tumbling down through the bush towards us and you know everyone tells you don't run, don't run, stand your ground, speak loudly, be confident, yada, yada yada. It's just a lot harder when um, you actually hear the bear coming towards you. Now, it was a black bear, which is another thing it's difficult to remind yourself about when you hear the bear coming towards you. Um, but uh, this couple that we ran into, they said they saw the bear that you know, we were moving away from, and that was actually their fourth bear of the day. Um, and there's signs up about how to deal with the bears. My favorite sign, which I forgot to take a picture of, was ran through like when to play dead versus when to stand your ground and when to fight back if attacked by a bear and the thing that really um sort of stuck with me was that if a bear invades your tent fight back they told us that which is you know really useful super useful information um it's sort of like a a friend of mine once told me that you could uh um if a shark was attacking you, you could just punch it really hard in the nose and it would swim away. And that's just really hard sort of guidance in, in the mix of things. But even harder is there's some people who say, because sharks like to attack from behind, except for great whites, which um, um, is even more terrifying. They like to attack straight from below. Uh, But sharks, you know, they're, They're jerks, right? So they want to take little snaps at you from behind. And so if you make eye contact with them, they will not attack you apparently. uh, This is what someone says, or this is what people say. And I always love the idea of being out in the open water. You see the fins coming and all you got to (laughs) do is like dog paddle while making like Robert De Niro in the in-laws eye contact at all times, you know, pointing at your eyes and the shark's eyes and saying, I see you. And that'll hold them up. Bay. I mean, that just, maybe it's true, but it's just like, it's just not the most useful. I mean, maybe it is the most useful, but it's just, it's not re-encouraging or it's not uh, reassuring uh, advice. If you can't tell, I haven't had much coffee yet. And again, I am in a, I'm in a world of hurt. I got this pinched nerve thing in my back. Probably should not be rafting. Um, but I can't back out now. Um, so anyway, I wrote a G file yesterday. I got the sense that some people didn't like it. I mean, it's always weird when you write in August, you get much less feedback and, uh, because other people are doing things I and, um, and the feedback you get tends to be a little different than, um, normal. I don't know why that necessarily is, but it's been my experience in my 5,000 years of doing this. Um, and uh, I, you know, I liked it. I didn't love it, but I think it's true. You know, what I wrote about was how, you know, I used the Washington Post, but lots of people are doing similar stuff. They're turning white identity into a thing. And, you know, I'm only remember even 10 years ago to talk about white culture and a white identity was to basically reveal yourself as either some sort of straight-up racist or at least somewhat sympathetic to racism um, and, you know, the sort of identitarianism of the alt-right, groiper v- various voices at v crowd. And, you know, V-Dare, for those of you who don't know, which despises me, um, they hide behind, hide behind the claim that they're just a collective of writers with no central authority. And that allows different racists to get away with stuff without allegedly undermining VDR total credibility as an aggregator of cranks. Um, but VDR is, you know, and is, you know, has been very cross with national review for, uh, not embracing notions of white culture and white identity and, um, and for rejecting antisemitism and all these kinds of things. And, um, and not everybody at Vidair shares the same different, same levels or kinds of bigotry. But, you know, they, when I came in at, at NRO, they, uh, um, they started only calling national review Goldberg's review. Um, even though, you know, I wasn't running the magazine and, and it was sort of a ludicrous thing, but the word Goldberg has a nice, um, you know, symbolic impact. And they were constantly, uh, mocking NR for hiring Ramesh because, you know, they kept wanting to claim he was some sort of immigrant when in fact he was born in Kansas. Um, anyway, I, oh, why did I bring up video I brought up Vidair because Vidare stands for Virginia Dare and it's named, uh, who was the first white girl, um, born in the United States and, um, there's not white blonde and, you know, all that stuff. And if you read like Peter Brimelow's, uh, you know, anti-immigration stuff, you know, the, the adjective blonde shows up more than it should. Um, anyway, um, but if you'd said even 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago, that you believed in white culture and white, white race and white this and white that, it didn't guarantee you because context matters that, you know, you didn't guarantee it wasn't a guarantee that you were revealing yourself as some sort of racist or, or fellow traveler and all that kind of stuff. But, um, it was, it increased the probability considerably. And so anyway, my, um, um, my objection is, Well, it runs a a bunch of different ways. One is just historical. The idea that from its founding, right, because a lot of this comes out of the sort of 1619 ideology and methodology. The idea that from its founding, there was a uniform understanding of America as a white people, that whiteness was a form of social solidarity and meaning and identity. It's just, it's, it's ludicrous. I mean, you gotta remember, look, Europe, the col—the colonists who came here, mostly from England, but also from, you know, from Holland and, and other parts of Europe, they were European. They'd been in Europe for a very long time, you know? I mean, like, and Europe had a lot of wars, you know, a hundred years war, good, good indication of like the depth of warness in Europe. Um, and all of these wars and conflicts, you know, the conflicts over the investiture of the Holy Roman emperor or the defenestration of Prague. I mean, just run through the table of contents of your European history, AP, um, final or, or prep book or whatever. And you'll find that almost all of the social, economic, political, ideological conflicts of Europe, um, were, between and among white people. So when everybody shares a characteristic, that characteristic no longer um, or never in the first place becomes a source of of important identity or dispute or division. And so the idea that all these people who came to the United States came here in the name of whiteness or white culture is just silly. You know, there were Quakers who hated you know, uh, Catholics, or I don't know. I mean, I I don't want to disparage anybody. My point is that you're just the divisions, social, cultural, political, communal, whatever, um, of America among white people, lowercase w white people, whiteness didn't factor into it very much, except in the context of dealing with black people and even there you know it was much more complicated than the history you know you know or at least the 1619 crap you know wants to persuade people i mean the you know the abolitionist movement was formed by you know in the north it was formed mostly by white people but, and they were fought in and and contested with by white people and so anyway this is raises just sort of an important distinction that i think is lost on a lot of people as as much as it sort of initially bothered me, the capitalization of B and black for black people that the AP and other places bought into, it makes sense. You know, um, uh, there's this, you know, black people in America who've been here, you know, for a long time, um, You, they could become, due to some weird mutation of COVID-19, blonde and blue-eyed, and they would still have, um, and and white skinned, right? They would still have a distinct cultural history that, for all intents and purposes, as an ethnic history, that deserves recognition as something distinct and you know both a part and part of us. You know, I'm I'm part of the school that thinks in many ways African Americans are the most American of Americans in all sorts of ways. Uh, it was a guy named Albert Murray wrote wrote about the omni-Americans. Um, at the same time, I also think in many curious ways, African-Americans are the most European um, ethnicity in America. And by that, I mean that, um, you know, historically African-Americans had to look to, I should say, you know, European's probably the wrong word. They, you know, African-Americans... Their ancestors, for the most part, did not choose to come here. Um, They were forced into a kind of ethnic identity. Um, And, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, a lot of conservatives get all worked up about why do African-Americans, you know, look to the federal government so much in their politics. And it's because, you know, (laughs) because the federal government is the thing that crushed slavery, Crushed the democratic tyrannies of sta- slave states in the South. Um, and it was the federal government, uh, you know, 100 and some odd years later that came in and essentially crushed Jim Crow through the Supreme Court. You know, and so the, the African-American historic, African-Americans historic relationship with, with the centralized power in the United States is just very different than a lot of other groups. And, you know, there's an analogy here to European Jews. Uh, you know, people, I don't know if I've talked about this on here. I, 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 you know, it's a time suck, but um, um, people are fascinated with why our Jews are liberal. And uh, my standard answer to all that is that it's an overdetermined phenomenon. And by that, I mean, there are so many reasons for it that um on the one hand you can't rule out any of the reasons but you also can't prove that any of any of the one reasons is responsible for it um so like so for example i could give you 10 probably reasons that explain why at least some jews are liberal and you know and some of those reasons will apply to some jews more than other jews but uh one of the standard arguments is that um, Jews as a sort of Darwinian survival strategy in Europe had to look to centralize the central powers for their own survival. Lots of kings in medieval Europe um became the protectors of the Jews. It was even in some of their formal titles. Um, and that was in part, you know, and the reasons for that wasn't so much that, you know, the Monarchs of Europe were, uh, you know, passionate believers in philo-Semitism or anything like that. It was, and some of it had to do with usury laws and, and access to capital and that kind of thing. And we can get deep in the weeds about why, um, uh, you know, the usury stuff is not, is, is, is often used unfairly against. Jews and Jewish stereotypes, when in fact, you know, the deal was, Europeans said, "You'll lose your soul, you'll be excommunicated, all the stuff if you lend money." Um, but they desperately needed to lend money. They need to need to be able to have money lending and borrowing and that kind of stuff. So they said, "Okay, since the Jews aren't going to heaven anyway, we'll give it. We'll let the Jews do it," and then they condemned them for being money lenders um but anyway so you like my own ancestors in the you know the pale of the settlement you know whether it was lithuania ukraine poland you know russia um you know the old joke was if only the czar knew right because so much of the persecution of jews in these pogroms was done at the local level by cossacks and that kind of stuff and there was this idea that you know that the czar was a protector of the Jews and he would never allow this to go on. Um, So anyway, that became a sort of political survival strategy was when you don't have numbers, when you don't have political rights, when you don't have um, popular support, you basically lobby the centralized power for support. Um, That's one of the main, that's the similarity in some ways with African-Americans here is that local governments were in many certainly in the south we're not the we're not friends or friendly to um, blacks and so they had to look over the heads of you know local governors and that kind of thing towards the centralized authority since I brought it up and I know look I mean I'm sorry I'm still I need to drink more coffee I know my that at least some of my listeners are like well, why don't you keep why, why'd you stop talking about why Jews are so liberal so let me just finish that so I can f- avoid some of the email um in rapid order some of the other explanations for why jews are so liberal jews tend to be historically tend to be urban rather than rural um the more urban you are the more likely it's not a guarantee i'm urban uh the more the more urban you are uh the more likely it is that your politics move to the left um jews are overeducated compared to the you know the population in general, education in general starts to push people to the left. Again, not a hard one, not a hard, you know, immutable law, but it tends to be the case. More real ones. Um, the, you know, this is sort of a Tom Sowell point. Tom Sowell says, you know, it's, it's fine to look at, um, where immigrants come from, but you shouldn't forget to look when they came from there. So for example, if you had a immigrant from Scotland and, 1790 or 1800, you'd be my kind of guy. You'd be like an Adam Smith, flinty, rugged individual kind of guy, sort of the perfect yeoman farmer in Vermont type. Remember, Vermont used to be the most Republican state in the union. Um, If you had an immigrant from Scotland today, he would be um, some crazy red cancel rent type um, so you have to look at when people came, the Jews who came to the United States in the, at the end of the 19th century, and the beginning of the 20th century, um, you know, first of all, they were the beneficiaries of these very liberal movements of emancipation of Jews in Europe. Second of all, a lot of them, uh, were, uh, from major socialist movements um, in those countries and they brought their values with them They brought their ideas with them. Um, and you know, the, the single greatest predictor of what your politics are are what your parents' politics were. It it transmits from parents very much the same way that religion transmits. So if your parents were lefties or liberals or whatever, whatever you want to call them, you're most likely to be, if you are, your kids are, um, obviously, again, not a lot hard law, but when you're explaining the behavior of large numbers, it it's important. Um FDR was much better uh reaching out to Jews than the Republicans were. Republicans, the Republicans had a real unspoken problem with anti-Semitism, sort of a country club version, uh gentlemen's agreement kind of thing for a long time, and and Jews knew it. Um and so that made the pol- the political coalition that FDR put together more attractive. The staying power of one's parents in politics um, and all the rest had a long lag time. So that's part of it. Truman's the guy who, rep- who recognizes Israel. Um, there are a lot of Jews for whom that was a foundational major thing that bought a lot of loyalty. Um, I got to say the number of people I still run into on the right who think that there's a weirdly... I, they're decent people, but there's a weirdly anti-Semitic logic inside some of the questions I often get from people. First of all, the assumption <laughs> that I'm an expert on Jewish behavior or the assumption that I'm an expert on Israel is always kind of funny. You know, people will say to me, well, you know, your real expertise is Israel. And I was like, no, it's not. Um, but, uh, um, I actually had, you should go and watch some of my C-SPAN appearances where people will literally say. You know, of course he's pro-Israel. Look at his last name. But anyway, there's this w- slightly anti-Semitic or at least problematic uh, logic inside of the, um, the assumption that, you know, people ask me, they'll say, why, you know, why are Jews, why do Jews vote Democrat when the Republicans are so much better on Israel um, and implicit in there? And this is, a, this is a view that is shared by many Jews, I know. Implicit in there is that Israel should be determinative of, of what an American jew's positions are on everything else, and it just turns out it's factually not true it's um It's a huge problem on the left. Just look at like the Peter beinart wing of american jewry um being pro Israel will get you yelled at at a lot of synagogues these days anyway um but for a certain generation, recognition of israel was a was a huge deal, and the Democrats led that then there's like um, more philosophical stuff, the Holocaust, um, convinced a lot of Jews that there is e- e- either in their hearts or they in their heads, that there is no God, um, best to commit yourself to, uh, works in this world, to secular politics for, for a chunk of Jews, uh, secular politics became a kind of substitute for religion and infected a lot of religion, um, And I'm not saying that they're all atheists, but they're, you know, chunk are atheists. And, um, it also bought, it also caused some Jews to buy into a victimology philosophy that is, um, conducive to, you know, a lot of modern left-wing stuff. Um, it also, and a lot of these things are not rational or thought out, but they're at the sub-rational level, you know, where you're the subconscious level where they get explain motivations to some extent or another. Um, there's the, um, the sense that, you know, the, the, the view that it, it, this can never happen again, we've seen civilized countries go, um, barbaric, you know, like Nazi Germany. Um, and therefore in the sort of, uh, Niemöller kind of sense, Uh, it encourages a coalition politics where you dedicate yourself really passionately to things like civil rights, because if they can come for the blacks, they can come for the Jews next, or they came for us. And now we have an obligation to protect them. Anyway, that sort of civil rights first mindset is very powerful among a lot of Jews. And I don't think it speaks poorly of them by any stretch of the imagination, but it helps explains their political alignment a little bit. Um, anyway, I could keep going. Um, The point is, is that it, there are a lot of different reasons for why it is so that, that Jews are liberal. Why did I get on this? Um, something about, (laughs) I'll figure it out. Oh, how African-Americans have kind of like a Jewish orientation in some ways. Um, anyway, back to this idea of making whiteness a permanent construct, um, uh, I don't know, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I, I've just never known a lot of people who weren't really woke left-wingers or really racist common section jackasses who began a lot of, you know, started their thinking by saying, you know, as a white person, I think blah, 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 blah. and, um, And I always thought that was a good thing um that you don't want white people thinking that um that whiteness is a really powerful concept for identity and meaning you don't want some uh Irish catholic guy and a um waspy banker you know, one from Pennsylvania, and one from San Francisco to have this sense of, yeah, we're on the same team because we're white. Right. I don't think a lot of good things come from that. And, um, and for the most part of you know, American whites didn't do that, you know, and we are now reaching the point where, so anyway, you know, that's how I got into the Jewish stuff. Blacks are different, right? Blacks, Basically, because they could be identified simply by this single factor—the color of their skin—or you know that kind of thing—they um, were oppressed. They were oppressed. They were exploited. Specifically, you know, evil things happened to them, and and even after slavery and all of that, uh, you there was still it was still possible in America to reduce, you know, really accomplished, you know successful black people to just being another black guy. I'm not going to use the N word or any of that kind of stuff. Um, And that creates a completely different cultural phenomenon than talking about white people. And um, so part of the problem I have with it is, is basically it is taking the views of the oppressed of their oppressors and saying that the oppressors are now a monolithic culture too. I have nothing but sympathy for, a uh, black person 50 years ago 100 years ago you know to some extent even today seeing whiteness as a monoculture because we tend to see all cultures that we're locked out of as monocultures right it's sort of like canadians can see all the things that that make americans american even though we're kind of blind to our own culture because fish don't know they're wet so i don't know i don't mind that i don't object to black people talking about white culture um But man, the idea that we should instantiate that sort of cultural exception and reify it and turn it into this abstract category just strikes me as a disastrously stupid thing to do. Um, And it's of a piece with what the left has been doing for a very long time now. When they they talk about white supremacy and whiteness and and all of these things and they keep hammering it, I write about this in Suicide of the West. I mean, this is one of the suicidal choices we're making, um, if you go around telling normal white Americans that they're evil, they're the bad guy, um, not only that, they've always been the bad guy, um, you're going to arouse a defensiveness. And there, Sherry Berman and others, there are studies that prove this, that the more you attack all whites as being racists, the more you say all whites are racist, the more you talk about white people being bad, the more racists you create, because you, f- you click on the coalition instinct in their brains and they're saying, you know, wait a second. You know, my grandfather fought in World War II. My great, great grandfather was, in, you know, fought for the union in the Civil War. My dad was a good guy. Um, and you start looking for reasons to be defensive about whiteness and being white. And then that becomes its own self-fulfilling prophecy. And so the last thing in the world we want to do is, is codify that in journalism and academia. I mean, we're a long way down that path already, but it's sort of nuts to me, particularly when there isn't very much to this notion of white culture. Yeah, there's sort of like Mill-aged guys dance with an overbite. Ha, ha, ha. You know, (laughs) there's like that kind of stuff. But there's not, you know, they they use too much mayo. Um, You know, there's the stuff that you hear from stand-up comedians. Although, um, you know, uh, that's all fine and it's funny and people should have a little bit of a sense of humor about it. I should have a lot of a sense of humor about it. The last thing you want is to have stand-up comedians talking about how they think, you know, white people are funny uh, because they don't use washcloths. And all of a sudden, saying "How dare you criticize my people and my ethnicity?" That is not what we want in this country. We want people to say, "Ah, oh, it's funny because it's true," and then move on because they don't really care much about their white identity being attacked. Um, you know, you want sources of meaning. You want people to have sources of meaning that have substance to them. And so, as I say in the G file, you know, I, I can. There, I, I really don't know how to finish a sentence. Um, as a white person, I think X, um, because there are very few things I think that I can't think of another white person who disagrees with me, um, about it. I can say I can rattle off all day and all night, you know, as a father, I think X as a dad, I think Y as a husband, I think Z as a, you know, deracinated Jew, I think, you know, whatever you know, as a guy at AI, or as the co-founder of the dispatch or as a dog owner, these things have content to them and they have content from lived experience. The idea that we should have all this content coming from our whiteness strikes me as just creepy. And look, I and mean, so the response you get from sincere advocates on the other side is, well, thinking that you don't have to think as a white person is a sign of white privilege. And I get the argument and I think there's probably some truth to it. Um, But shouldn't that be sort of what we're looking for, for the whole of society where, you know, that isn't that the point of judge people by the contents of their character rather than the color of their skin? Shouldn't it be that we, that one's race isn't the first sort of, you know, magic eight ball that we rub inside our brains to find out the answers to things. Um, you know, let me consult my racial status before I answer that question. That's a weird thing to say. It's a weird thing to think. And it is something that I thought as a country we wanted to move away from, but the post wants us to move closer to it. And, and so do a lot of other people. And I think that's, that's really, really sad. Um, all right. Enough with all of that. Um, 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 what else? Um, oh, I should know. Not enough with all that. Well, there's a crow literally on the top of my car. It's kind of creepy. Um, one last point. I mean, just to explain what, you know, where all of this is sort of coming from. Liberalism was precisely this idea, right, that we would unleash the unique potential of individuals. And um, and there's this famous line from uh, this guy, his full name goes on forever. Comte Joseph de Maistre is the short of it, who was one of the foremost critics of the Enlightenment. He was an ultramontane Catholic, um, brilliant guy. He's the guy you may have heard people say in the era of Trump, uh, nations get the governments they deserve. Uh, that's his line. And but so there's this famous line where de Maistre says, you know, I don't know who this person man is. I'm not quite, I'm I'm really paraphrasing badly from memory. Um, He says, you know, I've heard of, I've heard of French men and the German men and, and uh, Chinese men. Uh, Wow. The crow is getting really annoying. Um, And all these things, but I've never met this person, man, you know, who is it? And what he was trying to say was that, um, that people are born into this sort of iron cage of identity And they can't get out of it. And it was a direct shot at the Declaration of Rights of Man and the the, the sort of ideas that went, the Enlightenment ideas that went into the the founding. Um, And uh, for a very long time, that was considered like the conservative, essentially racist position was, you know, going back to Aristotle, this idea that slaves are... uh, that some people are slaves by nature, right? This idea that the iron cage of identity is something that you cannot break out of. Um, And it gets updated in every generation or every couple generations, depending upon, uh, you know, where science is and all these kinds of things. So, you know, this argument predated any notions of sort of genetic determinism and a lot of the scientific racism of the late 19th and early 20th century but it fit in perfectly with it, right? And interestingly, to me, it migrated to the left. And um, I'm not saying it didn't exist in pockets of the right as well, but the progressives, you know, really bought into that stuff. And um, I don't think the post believes in biological racism or anything like that, but their their cultural construct is very similar to all that. It's just that you cannot escape these identities, these identities. Um, define you because that's how we're going to define you. And I just think it's a terrible mistake. All right. Um, other things going on. I'm kind of really out of the news. Um, I thought that the um, I don't know where we stand on the explosion in Lebanon, but uh, last I checked in, uh, it seems like it was this unbelievably stupid bureaucratic error of leaving thousands and thousands of pounds of ammonia nitrate in a warehouse for a long period of time. And if that's true, people should hang. I mean, that's just unbelievably stupid. Um, Maybe that's changed. Either way, I thought it was grotesquely irresponsible and dumb of the president to say my generals tell me it was an attack. Um, That is just a classic example of Trump getting ahead of the proper process for these kinds of things to sort of preen a little about his inside info and his wisdom. Um, and it's going to create enormous problems. Um, and at the very least, it won't help in any regard. And it was just an irresponsible thing to do. I haven't gotten up to speed on Trump re-proposing Obamacare, um, but I thought that was kind of funny when I checked in on Twitter last night. And um, I don't know where we stand on any of the negotiations for the economic bailout stuff. Um, I did see that the Democrats are starting to change their mind about opening schools and people. It was one of the things <coughs> people said I should talk about here. And um, uh, I have no granular analysis of it other than to say that it makes a lot of sense to me because you know, this is one of these issues that people stop being ideolo- ideological about and categorical about. You know, you have a lot of parents out there who are freaking out that, you know, they can just see what school closures will do to their kids, will do do to their, you know, their daily um, work schedules due to their finances. And um, the idea that this was going to stay split along some sort of partisan lines just always seemed to me kind of fanciful. I remember talking on the Dispatch podcast, plug, plug. Uh, a month or two ago about how, um, you know, Trump had said that, uh, that Democrats want to keep the schools closed to punish him and blah, 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 blah. And my skepticism is on record back then. I was like, you know, look, if you're on the school board, if you're some local city councilman, um, and you're trying to figure out, how you're going to get kids on buses and to schools and back home from school and how you're going to do it without infecting teachers and principals and how you're going to do it without infecting the parents of the kids. And what happens if a kid gets, you know, is was one of these incredibly rare ones and gets really sick. The idea, and, and if we keep the close, the, school, the, the school's closed. What are we going to do for um, all these, you know, parents who desperately need, you know, their kids to go to school so they can go to work, blah, 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 blah. blah. The idea that, all of those considerations are going to be swept aside uh, because you want to screw Donald Trump always just seem to be incredibly stupid. It's a conspiracy theory, right? I mean, these people, you know, I mean, if they're answerable to anybody, they're answerable to really pissed off parents and local businesses. And their investment in this issue is so powerful that, you know, national politics just doesn't enter into it. And I think those are very, sa- for the same reasons, those kinds of forces on the ground Um. I thought it was sort of always inevitable that I was going to push Democrats in that direction as well. Um, when I, oh, I'm very, very pleased about Jerry Falwell's fall, um, I, you know, I know I don't get any credit from the people who think Jerry Falwell is a good guy, but screw them, seriously. Uh, I've been defending the religious right, the Christian right, um, uh, against all sorts of attacks and, and, and calumnies for 20 plus years. And, and I did it proudly and happily. And I stand by nearly all the stuff that I wrote, or maybe all the stuff that I wrote, I'd have to go back and look. Um, and then people like Jerry Falwell, who's not a clergyman, he's not a theologian. He's a hack corrupt lawyer who got, uh, intoxicated by Donald Trump's musk and the senior, grosser kind of uh, green room entourage, bull uh, that seduces some people for reasons I cannot get my head around. And he embarrassed and humiliated this educational institution that has a lot of decent and sincere Christians in it who actually want the place to reflect you know, their religious beliefs and he took it all for granted. He wanted to become sort of the third Trump son or something, I don't know. And he, I thought he was a grotesque embarrassment. And he was an embarrassment, you know, all let Christians defend or not defend what they think is or isn't embarrassing. Um, sort of not my lane. But as a, as a right winger with the, the decoder ring, um, I just horribly embarrassed to have that jack wad considered to be part of my coalition. Um, so I'm delighted to see him go good for Liberty University, good for the forces of truth and justice. Um, and, you know, and besides everyone there has got to really prepare since if Biden is president, according to president Trump, uh, he's going to hurt God, which is, uh, you know, sometimes I kind of, I kind of be fun. You remember there was that Saturday Night live skit where, uh, the second, Strangers were ushered out of the room. Sort of dopey, unclued-in Ronald Reagan turned into this incredibly hands-on guy. Um, I know that there are millions and millions of people who think that that's Trump. That he really has a mastery of the finer details, um, and uh, that he knows what he's doing. Four-dimensional chest, yada yada yada. Um, I don't think he you knows. I don't think any of that stuff is true. I think he's literally the least prepared and the least intellectually curious um, and desirous of being prepared president that the United States has ever seen including when Woodrow Wilson was suffering from a stroke um, but it would be kind of fun to do a really deep in the weeds thing where um, you know it turns out that Trump wasn't talking that he's theologically fluent and he really wasn't talking about it hurting God but um, but hurting the demiurge or something and that he has, he has a different deity in mind. Um, uh, anyway, that's probably needs to be that probably needs to be in the oven for another hour just to reach quarter baked. So I'll leave it that there. Um, I you know personally of the criticisms of Trump, the one where I have the least uh, investment in was this brouhaha over Thailand. Um, although I thought it was hilarious that Dinesh thought it vital to defend him on this when he corrected his pronunciation like 5 seconds later but um look i mean i have malapropisms all of the time um i don't have to read from teleprompters trump is not good at reading from teleprompters and um the idea that you wouldn't you know mispronounce something reading off a teleprompter i mean that would happen to anybody i just don't think it's a big deal um and it makes for some funny jokes on Twitter and all that kind of stuff. But the idea that this is like proof of, of Trump's, you know, perfidy or incompetence or whatever, just sort of silly, um, as was the sort of the overreaction, overreaction to corpsmen and all that stuff. Um, but it did elicit in me, uh, it inspired me to tweet something the other day, which I had no idea was such a passionate dividing line in American life. I tweeted out that the chicken thigh, the thigh is the best part of the chicken by far and that the breast is the worst and my God, that thing took off on Twitter. I mean, within, you know, people were, even our own Declan, um, from the dispatch, you know, was castigating me for being wrong and that the breast is better than the thigh, which is, you know, really sorry that we're gonna have to fire Declan now, but, um, it was just, I had no idea that, that this was such a divisive issue. And first of all, on the merits, it's just objective, objectively true. Look, I, I, I am open to the idea that like there's some people who don't like drumsticks, you know, and for reasons I understand, um, and, or that they do like certain dishes using chicken breast and that's fine. All the rest, but the idea that the thigh isn't the best part of the chicken is just nuts. It's just wrong. Um, the, the 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 thigh has texture. The thigh has flavor. The thigh has juices in it. Um, it's really hard, uh, to overcook. Um, it's got a, just a great chewiness to it. That is fantastic. Um, and I became a convert, you know, a little inside conservatism trivia. My wife and I, 15 years ago, went to dinner at Charles Murray's house out in Burkittsville. And they made, uh, what we have ever since called Charles Murray chicken, which is basically just a, I'll get you the real recipe if you want it, but, um, it's basically, um, chicken breast I and mean, chicken thighs, sorry, uh, marinated in like soy and want to say maybe a little vodka or maybe it's like, uh, teriyaki sauce, that kind of thing, garlic, whatever. And then really well grilled really quickly. Um, and It's fantastic and we we do it with rice at home and like um, whenever we're sort of at a loss what to make for dinner, we'll say, eh, let's just do Charles Murray chicken. Um, But anyway, so this became this huge thing and I I found that some of the people, uh, one of the, some of the people trying to make the case for chicken breasts was sort of fascinating to me. A couple people made this argument that, yeah, look, for you amateur cooks, Chicken thighs are superior because they're so hard to screw up. Um, And uh, meanwhile, amateurs that really struggle to make chicken breasts good because it's really easy to overcook them and dry them out. But really good chefs know how to make chicken breasts or really good cooks know how to make chicken breasts that are flavorful and juicy and all that. I don't dispute that. I've had some wonderful chicken breasts in my time. But I like the argument that says the cut of the chicken that even if you screw up cooking, it tastes awesome is worse than the part of the chicken that it's really easy to screw up. And even if you get it right, doesn't taste as good as the chicken thigh. And then there's just on this, there really can be no debate. Although I was, I was stunned that there was. Um, and a friend of mine pointed out to me that this is a cultural thing that in Europe, uh, big, big chunks of Europe, they prefer thighs. In America, we prefer breasts. And, and so like Tyson ships most of its thighs to Europe and most of its breasts to the United States. And, um, um, which is, I don't know, somewhat interesting, I guess. And, um, other than that, uh, I think we have, we have one remnant in the can that will air on Tuesday, I hope. And, um, Uh, And I think David French is going to pinch hit for me for the Thursday episode. And by Friday, hopefully I'll be back and be able to do this ideally on a Friday instead of a Saturday morning in the parking lot somewhere. Although I'll be doing it from a parking lot someplace else. And um, uh, oh, and one last thing, you know, of the people, you know, I never really understood for a long time, William F. Buckley's famous line, cancel your own damn subscription, right? because people would write them and say, cancel my subscription. And um, we've, as a policy here at the dispatch, and I have to be reminded of it from time to time, um, if you send us an email saying unsubscribe me from uh, the G file or unsubscribe me from all your newsletters or whatever, we don't get a lot of them, but we get some, um, we don't get snippy. We say, sorry to see you go. And, um, we take care of it, but I got to say just as a point of personal privilege, um, the people who get really snarky and say, take me off all your emails, never email me again and all this kind of stuff. I just, I just, I just want to get it out there. And obviously the people listening to this probably don't overlap very much with this crowd. I didn't subscribe you people up in the first place. You did that. And, you know, if you're too lazy or you don't know how, which is perfectly legitimate, or even that you want to send me a signal that you disagree with something I wrote, that's fine, you know, because it's funny. We get conservative people get pissed off about Trump stuff. We get uh, progressive people who are pissed off to find out that at least me and some of my colleagues are still conservatives. Um, And so we get anger from all different angles and it's kind of interesting. But, you know, I didn't sign you up for any of this stuff and we hate to see you go, but acting as if I did you wrong by sending to you something that you signed up for gets kind of old and annoying. And I'm very tempted to say, you know, unsubscribe, you know, uh, uh unsubscribe your own damn newsletter or something like that. to These people, but we don't do that. I just want to get it out there because I find it, you know, it, it, I find it a little vexatious at times. And, um, and, I find more and more that if I just chant serenity now, it doesn't work the way it used to. Um, I don't know what that foretells, but um, I'll let you know. Anyway, with that, thanks again for putting up with this. I hope this audio works out, and um, I'll see you when I see you. Wish me luck. Words, no come easy. I'm starting over.